Well, this morning we uh, come back to a fourth installment of a series we've been doing the last couple of weeks that I've entitled Cultural Creeds. These are little statements that uh, propose to be profound proverbs, if you will, popular level proverbs, but they are really weak attempts at wisdom that are intended to catechize a generation of people in a new kind of religion, a new system, a value system of this generation, and all sort of aimed at the exaltation of man and a world without God or denial of God or His hand in it. These uh, statements are catchy, they're positive, they're sometimes uh, hard to uh, respond to or argue against because they they're spun in such a, an uplifting way, but in fact they are deceptive and in some cases downright deadly. And so it has been our attempt to try to bring some clarity to these issues and to weigh them in the light of God's Word to find out their truthfulness and their error and hopefully to warn some people who may be drawn in by these sort of pithy little proverbs that are masquerading as profound truth. Now, just a footnote, if you're visiting with us, uh, this is a little different from uh, what you might normally find at Faith Community Church. I, I prefer to just move through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We've been studying Matthew for the last uh, several years, as a matter of fact, but we're taking a break from that uh, just to look at these, these little sayings and to spend some time thinking them through and helping to equip you to respond to them in the, in the culture and in your life and, and to equip those who are here who may be struggling even with some of these little uh, beliefs and these values. Now, if you've been with us, you've already heard a couple of these messages. We spent the first week talking about one of these creeds, which uh, we hear all the time, love is love. We, uh, we move from there to look at another one, live your truth. And last time we were together, we looked at one that goes, my body, my choice. Well, today we come to a fourth of these cultural creeds, and admittedly, it's a little bit different. Uh, today is a little bit different. This, this is another creed that aims more at, you might say, public policy than it does personal morality. And it's the statement that says, no human is illegal. No human is illegal. It's obviously an attempt to claim some sort of moral ground, on some sort of moral ground, to claim some high ground on a stance of immigration. And, and, and it's incumbent on us that we think about this uh, from God's Word. And, and I have to admit, I mean, today is uh, maybe a little less than like a sermon and a bit more like a lecture. I apologize uh, for those of you who thought you were out of school um, on Sunday, but here you are once again in the lecture hall hearing uh, a whole series of uh, facts and observations that are important. But they're important to us that we think clearly and biblically about uh, so many of these issues. And I should say right at the beginning of all of this that um, this is on a personal level not an issue of great concern for me. That is the issue of immigration. In fact, I, I generally consider myself pro-immigration. 
I, I love it. I celebrate it. I would, I would love to surround myself with as many various people from various backgrounds as I possibly could. I have many friends who have immigrated to this country. They were born in other places and they now have taken up residence here and I am enthusiastic about meeting them. My wife and I have hosted exchange students in our home and let them live with us for a year just because we love to surround ourselves with people from all over the world and to hear stories of their backgrounds and their cultures, their, their uh, food and their languages and all those things. And for those particularly who are in Christ, I love so much to hear the stories of how God brought them to saving knowledge of Christ in spite of very different backgrounds from what I knew growing up. Many of uh, those are members of our church. They're here with us even today, and I firmly believe that as the body of Christ, we would be much worse off without them. They contribute not just their gifts and and their their skills to the body of Christ here, but they they bring a, a, a wonderful and beautiful diversity to the body of Christ, and I love how the Lord is working in them and through them uh, to bring them here among us and to continue to give us a chance to learn from them. Not only that, I currently have a son who is attempting to immigrate to Switzerland. He is in the process, and I've been walking with him over video technology through the last few months and the last few weeks as he's going through all the difficulties of what it means to get all the documentation and and navigate all the complexities of immigration law and all the agencies and requirements and and hoops that he has to to run through. And we talk about the frustrations and even sometimes the um, misrepresentations and the false information that he has to chase down and all that that means in his life and all the expenses of that and the time and, and all the effort that goes into that. So I'm, I'm sort of freshly aware of, of what it is and how difficult it is to move to a new country and to try to set up residence there. I even am reminded uh, that I myself spent two years as a foreigner in another country. I lived in China for two years, and I had my own frustrations of trying to live there, always with the sense that at any moment I could, de- it could be deported if I fell, fell afoul of the, of the government there. And I, I knew what it was like to constantly feel like an outsider, not just because I looked different and I was, you know, eight inches taller than everyone, but just the language barriers, everywhere you went, you know, you were referred to as a Waigwaran, that is an outsider, someone from the outside, or in some cases in the sort of streets, they might call you Lao Wai, which is just like, like the old foreigner. Or in a more pejorative sense, they might say Guai Lao, which was basically a sort of a, a negative term. I think most of them didn't know I spoke Chinese, so I would hear that sometimes in passing, but I, I heard those kinds of comments, and it would always sort of remind you that you're not from there uh, and that you're not so, sort of one of the people. I mean, those were rare, to be honest. I mean, the vast majority of experiences I had in China were incredibly welcoming. People were so hospitable, and they brought me into their home, and they shared their, uh, their dinner table with me, and uh, we went on trips together, and we had so many great experiences Uh, for me whenever I was uh, living in China. But all of those things together have sort of of, uh, made me 
very aware and, and very sympathetic to people who are attempting to, to move to a new country and establish a life there. And as I said, I love that. I love the backgrounds. I love the stories. I love the, the diversity. And like many of you, I, I grew up in this country hearing in school the words of Emma Lazarus that are inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. And I embraced, if you will, this this um, ideal of America as a land of opportunity even for those who are immigrating. And I celebrated those things. So the issue of immigration in general is not an issue where I personally have incredibly negative feelings. And honestly, politicians who appeal to fear in this area have very little attraction for me personally. But... One thing that does concern me greatly is the issue of biblical fidelity. Faithfulness to God's word, how it's handled, how it's used, how it's appealed to. And what concerns me in the current environment particularly is hearing so many Christians misuse the Bible to try to take an upper hand in this particular debate within their, their friends or, or community or even online to support some particular agenda that they have embraced when it comes to the issue of immigration. Because anyone who is paying halfway attention knows it has become an incredibly divisive issue in our culture. It's not just America. I go around the world and I talk to people in other particularly developing countries and, and there seems to be an, an anxiety around this issue in a lot of corners. In countries in Europe, people are always talking about the issue of immigration and how it is impacting their lives and their culture and their nations. And it's no less true here in America in certain uh, sectors and in certain uh, 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 media stations. You hear it all the time. All these discussions, all these reports about what's going on in terms of the issue of of immigration. And and there are people on different sides of this debate that have their various concerns. But as I said, what really concerns me is when that divisiveness that is in the world is being brought into the church and people misusing the Scripture to try to shame others who are interested in having really honest discussions about these kinds of issues. It creates divisiveness in a place where that divisiveness ought not to be. And in some cases, it even generates attitudes that are ungodly towards brothers and sisters in Christ and even towards those who are among us from other countries. So this morning, I want to, as I said, this is a little less than a of a sermon and more of a, maybe a lecture, but I want to ask some basic questions. I want to, I want to know from the the, the word of God that if someone has concerns about immigration, does that necessarily mean that they're not compassionate? Does the Bible mandate that, um, that 
looser controls of immigration ought to be in place in order to uphold things like justice or equity? Does loving your neighbor mean that you have to support every, uh, any and every person who is attempting to flee their country? Is that what loving your neighbor demands? So we're going to take some time to, to look at some passages of Scripture this morning, and I encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to be all over the place. But I want to I want to just ask, does the Bible really speak to this issue? Is there a way that we can think more clearly on it from a biblical standpoint? And if if so, what exactly should that be? Well, to answer that, I'm going to lay out four principles that I think kind of give a blueprint of God's design for immigration, broadly speaking, in the Bible. And the first one is, is simply this, God designed distinction among nations. That's the place you must begin, that God designed it, that He created that we have nations, different nations with distinct languages and cultures, boundaries and borders. This comes to us from primeval history, particularly this recorded for us in the book of Genesis. That's where we find the establishment of of nations and cultures, of course, at the Tower of Babel. You may remember that story of the tower. It, it comes to us in Genesis chapter 11 after the great flood that had really uh, wiped out most of humanity on the basis of their consistent disobedience to God. And by doing that, it paved the way for a fresh start, a new start, God set the stage for the reestablishment of life on the earth, and in doing that, he echoed some of the original mandates that he gave all the way back in the Garden of Eden, one of which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was God's design. That's what he wanted to happen. He wanted people to to spread out, to uh, go all over the earth, and to take dominion over it. That That was what he had commanded them to do. Unfortunately, it soon became evident that the flood had not extinguished the inclination of the heart of man to rebel against God. And so instead of spreading out and scattering all over the face of the earth, they congregated. They actually all stayed in one location, we're told, and they began to build a tower. This was the descendants of Noah, and they were going to build this tower, not for the purpose of glorifying or worshiping the Creator, but actually in an attempt to match His glory and to achieve His greatness. In their sort of primitive way, this was what they were going to do. And it's at this point that God declares that as long as humanity is united together by a single language as a single people, they will continue to struggle against God in just this way. And so we read in Genesis chapter 11 that God cursed them. He actually struck them with confusion in their languages. He created by decree multiple languages for all of these people. And in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 11, it says that on this basis, God dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. So here, God has established a system where not just the people, but more importantly, their authority and their power is dispersed. Independent nations, each with its own language, its own culture, its own boundaries, was the remedy to the concentration 
of man's personal pride and the exploitation of all of that to infect everyone around them. He confounds and scatters them and ordains this diversity of cultures and nations and boundary as a, a remedy to sort of inherent corruption within humanity so that now by natural competition, each one of them would prevent the other from rising too high. It would foster humility among them. It would create kind of a, a natural firebreak, if you will, from, from allowing corruption to just burn through every corner of society. So different cultures and languages actually were ordained by God, and He wanted it that way. He scattered them because he didn't want them united. He wanted them separated. Independent nations, independent borders, if you will, boundaries, dispersion. And as we'll see in a little bit, he even ordained governments in all of these people groups to maintain order, lest they try to unite themselves against him again. Now, with that sort of basic foundation laid, we then can move forward to establish a second principle. God decreed regulation for immigrants in Israel. It's not surprising if you understand that God created separate nations. It's not surprising then to find that when he actually revealed his law, the law of Moses, to the nation of Israel, that it would include certain provisions for those who are entering Israel from other countries, and those provisions would include restrictions. There's a lot of confusion that has been created about this because people read their Bibles, for our context, mostly reading in English, and they read what God has to say about foreigners or sojourners or whatever, and those are all largely synonyms in the English language. There's not a lot of distinction, and they don't realize as they read their English Bible that the Hebrew language behind it actually has quite stark distinctions. There are multiple words in Hebrew that we translate sometimes foreigner, sometimes alien, sometimes sojourner, but even though we translate them with those kind of synonymous English words, they have very different meanings in the Hebrew. The two primary ones that we might mention this morning are nekar, uh, if you transliterate that, that's N-E-K-A-R, or ger, G-E-R. Nekar is basically a, a word for something that is strange or foreign, and so it is Uh, Not surprising that it's translated stranger or foreigner most of the time, but the word ger specifically refers to what you might call a protected visitor, someone who has been granted official or legal status within a nation. Either word describes people entering in from, from outside, but a ger was someone who was, who had the status that allowed them to remain in a country. And, and they, they followed all the legal procedures that allowed them to be recognized in that way. Now, that might surprise you when you hear about ancient peoples and ancient lands. That might surprise you to, to know that they recognize people in this way. 
You might have assumed that back in the ancient world, there were just sort of free-flowing sort of boundaries. Everyone moved back and forth all that they wanted to. No one really paid attention. You know, you might notice that someone had a different language, but you really didn't think very much about legal status or residency or any of those other things. But archaeologists have found uh, pretty compelling evidence to the contrary. In fact, uh, recently there were two massive fortresses, or forts I should say, that were unearthed on the border of ancient Israel, built sometime between 1450 B.C. and 1200 B.C. And these forts stood as entry points along the roadway where people would actually uh, gather or, or, or acquire some sort of permit to enter into the land of Egypt. In fact, there, there's a painting Uh, that has been found showing a band of people traveling from Canaan to Egypt. And in the painting, they're presenting to the governor a permit that shows their right, their permission to travel into the country, and not just them, but 37 other people in total with them. A very specific accounting of who was allowed and who was not allowed in the country. You may remember, even in the text of Scripture, you see evidences of this. In fact, if you have your Bible, look with me over at Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 47. This comes uh, in a portion of Scripture talking about, uh, of course, Joseph. Uh, Joseph was uh, born in Israel, but had, uh, or born in what would have been Canaan at that time, but had been sold into slavery by his brothers. He was carried off into Egypt, and through a series of events, the Lord blessed him, and he began to rise in prominence until one day he actually uh, rose all the way up to the place of second in command in Egypt, what we might call the prime minister of Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh. And then One day, his family from Canaan shows up at his doorstep because there is a famine in Canaan, and they're seeking refuge in Egypt. And Joseph, after eventually revealing his identity to them, welcomes his family into Egypt and proposes to give them refuge there. But before he does that, he still feels compelled to present them to Pharaoh to to get formal permission And you can pick it up in in Genesis 47, verse 3. It says, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the lands. Actually, the verbal form of the word ger. We've come to sojourn here for there's no pasture for, our, for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any who are able men among them, put them in charge of my flock Uh, or my livestock as well. So here they've come, they've asked for sort of formal permission. They're granted a formal status to be able to live there by Pharaoh himself. And they take up status as recognized, or we might say documented residences, residents. They are sojourners in that sense, gares, we would say in Hebrew. 
Later on, just a few pages over in the book of Exodus, we find another example of this. Moses, who himself was Egyptian, but was raised, uh, excuse me, was Israelite, but was raised in an Egyptian home and, and raised up to be a leader uh, in the Egyptian administration until one day he strikes down another Egyptian and he's forced to flee for his life. And he flees out of Egypt, out into the Sinai Peninsula to a place called Midian. And along the way, he, he encounters some, uh, some girls who are at a well and they're gathering water for the flocks of their father, Jethro. And then while they're there, they're being harassed uh, by, some, by some other shepherds and Moses comes to their aid and he helps them and allows them to return to their chore and in fact gets them back home earlier than expected. At which point uh, we read in verse 18, when they came home to their father Ruel, that was a, another name for, for Jethro, he said, how is it that that you have come home so soon today. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershon. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershon, you can see the little particle ger embedded in the name of his son. It sort of represents the change of status that Moses had. I was a foreigner, but now I am a ger. Now I am a, a resident by virtue of my marriage to this local, this local priest. Later on, after the Exodus, Israel was uh, leaving and they had passed through the Red Sea. They're out in the Sinai. They had wandered out there for many, many years and now ready to enter the promised land. They begin to make their way. They were sort of in, we, we might say, unincorporated or unclaimed desert, uh, no one's territory. But they begin to enter into the land of Edom in Numbers chapter 20. But before passing through the land, they send word ahead to the king of Edom asking for permission to pass through his land. And they tell him, we're not going to eat any of your food. We're not going to drink any water from your well. We just want to pass through. And the king of Edom denies them entry. And then they uh, go to make an appeal to say, we're not going to take anything from you. In fact, we will compensate you for any kind of inconvenience. We'll pay you for the right of passing through your land. And he responds by sending out his army to protect his border which causes Israel to then have to go all the way around the, the uh, kingdom of Edom. There were borders, and Israel understood that, and they understood that you just didn't sort of meander into someone's country just crossing borders wherever you want. You needed to ask for permission to be there because you had to respect the territory of a sovereign nation even back in those days. So it's easy to see, both by archaeological evidence, by biblical evidence, it's easy to see that even in the ancient world, borders were respected and territory was recognized and foreigners who wanted to reside in another country had to obtain some sort of permission in order to be considered their uh, uh, legal resident, an alien with certain rights and, and privileges. And this then becomes codified 
whenever Israel establishes their nation and God gives them laws. The law of Moses designated separate treatment for gers, those who were legally residing in Israel, and nekars, those who were just strangers. They were undocumented, we might say. There, there were stark differences. For example, illegal, uh, excuse me, legal immigrants, gears in Israel were supposed to be cared for. It was recognized that they were, in many cases, vulnerable. And so they're often mentioned alongside of widows and orphans, other vulnerable groups. In fact, in the third year, every third year, if you were a Jew, every third year, you had to give a separate tithe of your, of your fields, of your produce, as a kind of social security payment, a kind of social security net. You would give a tenth of everything that you had every third years to support those who were underprivileged. And this also went not just to widows and orphans, but it would go to sojourners. They were, in other words, they were a part of the system, uh, the legal system of support from the nation. Deuteronomy 26, verse 12 In fact, uh, you can look over there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 26. It speaks about this, uh, this tithe, which it says, the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. On top of this, farmers whenever they gleaned their crops on an annual basis, were supposed to leave some, some crops at the edges and the corners of the field so that legal immigrants and widows and others could actually come and pick what was left behind. Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest, You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, the gare. Here in Deuteronomy 24, you can read in verse 19, Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless. The widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not, uh, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. In other words, they were supposed to reflect on the fact that they themselves at one point were actually gears. They were residents in a foreign land. We sometimes talk about ourselves as an immigrant uh, sort, sort of nation, a nation of immigrants, I should say. Well, they were an immigrant nation. They actually, the entire nation lived in, in, uh, in a foreign land as a foreign people. And that was supposed to impact the way that they thought about those who were who were residing among them as legal immigrants. In fact, you hear this language a lot, this comparison that's sort of made in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 19, love the sojourner. 
Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or Exodus 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So again, you hear all of this language about putting the immigrant, the gear, alongside of widows and orphans as a vulnerable people. I might even add that sojourners had legal protections for their pay because there was a temptation to oppress them. And so uh, the scripture calls even that they would be paid a fair wage and that would be paid in a timely manner, just like you pay anyone else. Now, things were quite different for Nekars, what we might call undocumented residents in Israel. They didn't have any of those kinds of protections or any of those kinds of provisions. As a matter of fact, you were allowed to profit from them, even to charge them in ways that you weren't allowed to charge other citizens or other documented aliens. Deuteronomy 23.20, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. Israel was not allowed to charge interest on loans to fellow Israelites or even to sojourners among them. In a similar way, in Deuteronomy 15, it says that in the Sabbath year, every seventh year, you were to completely forgive all loans to fellow citizens and even to documented immigrants. But you did not have to forgive anything for undocumented immigrants you could continue to hold them to whatever the obligations were. Now, why in the world do I drag you through all of this extraneous data, right? We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We're not Israelites, most of us. Why do I bother taking you through all that? Well, plain and simple, because there are Christians who have employed these very passages as a way of shaming other Christians into yielding to a particular view on this issue. They're actually quoting these verses which relate to legal, documented immigrants as a way of suggesting that we should have a kind of policy of their preference towards undocumented immigrants. One minister in Arizona commenting on a a law that was supposedly going to make it more difficult for undocumented immigrants to get a job, they they wrote this, it's as if 70% of Arizonans who support the law have forgotten the biblical injunction to love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, end quote. They just pick these verses out of context or really uh, out, of, uh, out of historical context as if they're talking about the same thing without really realizing that there is a distinction in the biblical record partly because there's a distinction in nations that God recognized. There's even a group, a quite a large group known as the Evangelical Immigration Table which regularly publishes Uh, uh, documents, Bible studies, even documentaries, all aimed at, at persuading other Christians 
to embrace an idea of open borders in our own nation. They say this on their website, God tells us throughout the scriptures that he loves and has a special concern for the immigrant, Deuteronomy 10.18. He commands his people to do the same, Leviticus 19.33. God commanded the Israelites to treat foreign bo- the foreign-born the same as they treated their native-born Israelites, Exodus 12.49. And he also instituted special provisions for immigrants along with other vulnerable groups such as orphans and widows, Deuteronomy 24.19. Those are all the verses we just read. None of them apply, at least in Israel's context, to an undocumented immigrant. They refer to those who were there by permission within Israel. So these are essentially simplistic correlations that arise out of uncareful handling of God's Word. It's a shame because this group, the Evangelical Immigration Table, has thousands of signatories, some of them presidents of evangelical schools, many of them heads of national organizations, Southern Baptist Religious, Ethic, Religious Liberty and Ethics Commission, uh, the National Association of Evangelicals, all kinds of universities and seminaries and all that. And yet it is a very simplistic reading of God's Word, all aimed at silencing those who may not agree with their particular preferences. These people, they may have their reasons. I'm sure they have their reasons for supporting lax rules of immigration. Perhaps they, they think that our country needs more workers. There's not enough workers. Maybe, maybe they think that we need to sort of be a haven for people who are seeking better economic opportunity. Now, they may have all kinds of reasons. I, I told you, I myself generally am uh, very, uh, very, supportive of people trying to immigrate to our country. But whatever your particular bent is, you should not be twisting the Scripture to your own advantage or to the shame of your brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, there's a number of these people who would even suggest that the fact that all of these people, no matter where they're born, have all been made in the image of God. And on that basis, we have an obligation to extend to them equal privileges and rights simply on the basis that they are someone made in the image of God. And that requires a certain level of, of, uh, of uniformity in them. Well, they fail to recognize that the very God who made people in his image is the same God who separated them into different nations and didn't want them joined together completely as one whole. He, in that sense, endorsed restrictions and borders and created the whole issue of immigration. So, so we have to be careful as believers And as I said, the primary reason for that is because all the divisiveness that is not only around us in our country, but throughout our world, all over the place, has no place in the church. It has no place in the church. We ought to be a group of people who are united around the truth of God's word and informed by it to the best that we possibly can 
And certainly we want to treat all people humanely and, and we understand that there should be in cases of, of uh, persecution, maybe opportunities for asylum. But clearly God's word recognized a distinction between Israelite and those, Israelites and those who were uh, among them having followed the proper procedures and those who didn't. And his law, his righteous law, endorsed different treatment for each one of those different people. Now, I would add really quickly two more points. One of them is this. God demands submission to governing authorities. The Bible's clear. The Bible's clear that God establishes governments. He established the family in the Garden of Eden, and he established government as a, as a way of providing order and structure to society so that humans could flourish in that kind of environment. And so it's not surprising in Romans 13 when Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He actually goes on to say that they are God's servant for your good. They're the servant of God and the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God established governments whenever he separated the nations. He established governing authorities for the purpose of upholding laws and protecting people. That's clear from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Government leaders then have an obligation to look out for the welfare of the people over whom they have been set up to rule. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. In other words, it doesn't matter what the level of government, whether it's the supreme leader or whether it's the local leader or whether it's the police officer, it doesn't matter. They all, all of them have been established by God. And they've been sent, he says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. They are, in other words, they are to uphold the rule of law and they are to recognize those who comply with it and they're to punish those who don't. See, the Bible is clear on this issue that God establishes these authorities. They operate by his decree and his decree is they promote order and structure so that people may flourish. So is there such a thing as an illegal human? According to the Bible, yes. If there's a law that restricts them, then clearly, from a biblical standpoint, there is such a thing as a legal and an illegal status. This is all part of God's common grace. He wanted people to live in well-ordered societies, but distinct and he wanted within those societies to, to, to punish bad behavior and to reward good behavior. And these governments, by the way, have, among other things, a mandate towards impartiality. Through and through in the scripture, you see condemnation for, for partiality, particularly among leaders and judges. What that means is that those who comply with the law ought to be recognized as having followed the law. And those who don't ought to be recognized in the same way. It would be, in other words, a massive 
violation of justice. To have someone who spent literally years and tens of thousands of dollars going through all the process that it might take for them to be established in this country and to be able to live here in the, in the, within the structures and the laws that are there, be a massive miscarriage of justice to then take someone who bypassed that whole process and try to give them the very same privileges. That's a violation of God and His character and why He established governments. Believers should respect all of these things because they are clear in God's Word. That would mean that you, as an employer, if you have those who are working in your business and, uh, and they are uh, uh, here, they should have the right kind of documentation. And if they don't, you need to work with them to make sure that they do. That might increase your costs for sure, but the Lord can take care of that. As a church, we're not in the business of checking people's immigration if they come here to worship, but we certainly would encourage anyone who is among us to recognize God's established principles, and we would encourage them if they ask to, to begin a process of filing for the proper status so that they could remain here. In fact, I've done that Many, many times I've, I've worked with people. I've helped them reach out to certain attorneys. I've written letters for them. I have uh, helped them along the way to fill out documents all so that they could do everything that's required of them to be here legally. And I'm happy to do that. I, I love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to do everything that I can to help them not only uh, pursue whatever they feel like they need to pursue, but to be able to do it in a way that would honor the Lord. Which brings us really to the final principle that we need to note, and simply this, God desires compassion for the sojourner, the legal sojourners in your country. We, as Christians, ought to be pro-immigration. Here I'm pushing my views on you, I know, but this, I think, is consistent with Scripture. While God has certainly established governing authorities and while he certainly upholds and, uh, and maintains the right of governments to have boundaries and processes and all those other things, and while he recognizes the injustice of people who try to violate that and he encourages and, uh, and uh, even mandates in some cases that Israel would maintain those kinds of restrictions, we also recognize that those who are among us are here among us many times with great sacrifice. That's why in the Scripture, they're often grouped together with widows and orphans. Those, in other words, who have no support from extended family, widows and orphans. They, They don't have the natural supports that the rest of us might have. And so therefore, they're put into a category of those who may be in an acutely lonely situation or maybe even a vulnerable situation. And the Scripture really celebrates the fact that we ought to be extending the love of Christ to them. If for no other reason, simply for the sake of the gospel. I, I love the fact that we have people coming here from our, uh, to, our, to, to our nation, from nations all over the world, many of whom we can't even get missionaries into. 
Many of these people would have grown up their entire life, never met a Christian, never even seen a Christian church. I love Daniel is sitting here. Daniel, when he first came to the church, he would go over to Clarkston uh, every weekend or so, and he would pick up a refugee who had been provided a protected status by the United States. He would bring him back up to Woodstock. He'd feed him ribs, I'm sure, or whatever he eats at his house every weekend. And then he would bring him to church, and he would hang out with them and do all kinds of wonderful things things to expose them to the gospel. I loved it. That's exactly the kind of love of Christ that ought to be exhibited by the church. I mean, we ought to see the, uh, the, the, those who are among us who, are, who have immigrated here and have left so much behind in terms of their family and their support system. We ought to be opening our homes to them. We ought to be thinking about them during holidays, during feasts and festivals, we ought to be bringing them around our table. We ought to be encouraged to hear the way the Lord has worked. And if they don't know Christ, we ought to see it as a really special opportunity. The Lord has brought the nations to our doorstep. None of that really has anything to do with uh, the particular debates that are going on in our society, but it just simply has to do with, uh, with our love of the gospel and our love of people. And everything that God celebrated in the Old Testament. We ought to be those who readily and eagerly embrace brothers and sisters from all over the world. Like I said, I mean, I would, I would love it if every other row of our church was filled up with somebody from some other place. And we got the joy of hearing how God was working all over the world. It would be my absolute delight. These people, as I said, are beautiful, beautiful testimonies of God's grace. And, and it's our joy to be able to bear the burdens of their struggles alongside of them, to be able to walk alongside of them with the kind of love and the kind of support that we would want to have if we were a foreigner, if we were someone in another country, to be able to show them in very practical ways that God has made his claim on us and that now we, along with them, are not citizens of any particular country so much as we are citizens of heaven together, both bound for the same kingdom, with the same Lord, and the same love, no matter what our background. So that's what the gospel tells us. That's what the word of God tells us. That's the true story. We might still have different reasons for supporting different policies, but we all should be united around the fact that God's word is the guiding light, not only for the way we think about the world around us, but for the way we relate to one another in our midst. Father, we're grateful for this. It is a, a needful thing in our culture and our time when so many people have confusion and division and animosity and accusation. Help us as brothers and sisters in Christ not to follow that pattern of the world we want to love you. We want to honor all that you are doing around us. We want to love our neighbor. We want to love those who are even among us from different lands. We're grateful for them, thankful for your work among them, and we want to be a part of that in any way that we can. I pray that you give us a love for the nations and a love for one another. As we think through these things, may we understand that you are sovereign and you are Lord even over the nations. 
that we are in the situation we're in because of our own propensities toward pride and rebellion. But by your good grace, you've established order. You've called for justice. You've mandated impartiality. And we want to comply with that so that our lives are a living testimony to you. Help us, Lord, to always be mindful of these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.